0: Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September twenty second, two 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org.
1: Welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Terry Fluker, Arts Industry Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission. In the studio with me today is Stuart Rockoff. Stuart is the Executive Director of the Mississippi Humanities Council. Welcome.
0: Thank you for having me, Terry. It's great
1: to be here. Thank you. Um, We want to, of course, talk a lot about the work that you all are doing at the Mississippi Humanities Council. But first, I want to get to know you. Mm -hmm. Tell me, where were you born and raised?
0: Well, this is sort of an uncomfortable fact about me, Terry, is that I am not a native Mississippian. I am a Texan by birth and grew up in Houston uh, back in the 1970s and 80s. I just aged myself on statewide radio. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Well, that's okay. I was in Houston around that time. Yes, yeah, so we have that in common. That's, I love that. That's my hometown. Yeah.
0: So so for
1: someone that's never been to Houston, yeah. could you describe Houston?
0: You know, Houston today is is certainly different than it was back when I was growing up. Um, you know, it is a suburban sprawl type city. Um, I call it the world's largest shrine to commerce. I mean, they will tear down any sort of pretty grove of trees if they can get better, convenient parking. Parking is a basic human right in Houston. And so I grew up at a time, um, as I said, in the 70s and 80s, where Houston was really kind of reflecting uh, the kind of cutting edge in changes in America. Um, I, you know, I grew up in the city, but it was very suburban. I lived on a cul-de-sac and thinking back, I I kind of reflect and appreciate really how diverse that cul-de-sac was. Um, we were Jewish. There were several other Jewish families on the circle. Uh, we had a couple families from Latin America. I think one from Chile, one from Argentina. We had several Korean families and, you know, as I later became an immigration historian, I appreciated the context. So, so you know, kind of America began to change um, sort of demographically in terms of its immigration patterns after the 1960s. And so I grew up, unbeknownst to me, right in the middle of that. And so, you know, I was raised in a very kind of typical suburban type life, um, but one that I think, you know, presaged uh, a lot of what we're um, sort of seeing now across the country.
1: Yeah, it's um interesting that you should say that. I think that's sort of mirrors my uh growing up. Yeah. Um I all often describe Houston as a very international city. Oh for sure. You know, and um one of the things that really got me interested in Mississippi and the history of Mississippi was that both my parents were Mississippians. Wow. And I saw the the um folks from other parts of the world really embracing their heritage. And so right. that got me interested in, well, where
0: where where do I come from? Right. And it's interesting because that was sort of the entry point to how I got into Southern history, which has sort of led to where I am today. And that is I was in graduate school and um, uh, I was in a seminar on Texas history. And I guess since I'm not in Texas, I can say this. I don't really love Texas history all that much. I had to teach it a few times in grad school. But anyway, I hope um, none of my students are hearing this. But um, so I had to do a research project, and I decided I wanted to do the story of my grandparents and their families. And they came to Houston in the early 20th century as immigrants um, from Russia for the most part. And so, you know, that... Interest in tracing my family history got me interested in lots of larger things, um, kind of history of the South, history of race, history of immigration. And that was sort of the beginning of the path that sort of led me to, I guess, sitting in this room with you here at MPB.
1: Yeah, it's, um, you know, it was it was so inspiring, um, you know, sort of growing up, you know, in that kind of environment where you had all these different Right. cultures, and, and I can see the inspiration. Yeah,
0: what's interesting to me, though, is that I I only came to really appreciate and understand it kind of looking back. Later. At the time, you know, some of my closest friends were, in fact, um, kind of Asian Indians. Mm-hmm. And I never even thought at the time to ask them, Whoa, "Well, when did your parents come here?" And wh-? and again, later on, I kind of gained a sense of um, of how kind of unique and really important that was, um, and how American history was changing. Um, but at the time, I was just a clueless teenager, so you know, <laughs> I didn't know much. <laughs>
1: Having a good time yeah. in, in, in the cul-de-sac. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah for sure. Yeah. That, was, that was me too. Cool. What role did um, the arts play in your early childhood? So growing up.
0: Yeah, sure. So this is another kind of uncomfortable fact about me, and that is I, was, I am and was a horrible artist. Um, one of my uh, uh, saddest moments was in seventh grade I took an art class, um, and I got a D. And I cheated on the final and still got a D. Um, our assignment was to get a photograph from a magazine and then draw it. Right. I traced mine, which uh, we're supposed to do. And right. It was still awful. It was a profile of a football player on the sideline. So I have very uh, uh, limited artistic kind of capacity. But what I was always interested in art, and especially music. And so I think from an early on, I was really interested at the time rock and roll and the history and its evolution and the different things. And so, you know, understanding the arts uh, was something that I think was always important to me, even if I myself wasn't necessarily talented in that capacity.
1: But Houston was, you know, sort of the epicenter for um Performing arts and um, for the sure symphony, and symphony the and the, the, Ballet, Ballet, the alley theater, um, the it,
0: it It was uh, um, a major um, uh, cultural center. In fact, I remember in high school, I kind of discovered uh, the Menil Collection, yes. the Rothko Chapel, uh-huh. and to this day, whenever we go back and we have some time, um, I take my kids to go see these extraordinary, um, um, you know. Kind of museums and artwork. And, you know, Houston, it's amazing. You know, it is definitely a bourgeois economic city. But as I like to say, you know, some of the folks who got really rich in oil had good taste um, and purchased some extraordinary art and commissioned some extraordinary art. And so Houston has, that has been a great benefit. And also for me, it was kind of community radio. Like yeah. there, you know, there is a Pacifica radio station in Houston, and I was a kid listening to stuff that was well beyond my own experience and understanding. But that kind of window to kind of a kind of a larger, different world, uh, I think, was very inspiring to me.
1: Yes, it it, it certainly, you know, was that kind of environment yeah. in which you could easily be inspired if you right. were just if you weren't a practicing artist, you certainly uh, were exposed to really great art. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Yeah that was important.
1: So, so you were high school, which high school did you go to?
0: I went to Kincaid. Okay. And yeah. so, you know, uh, with, um, yeah. So, uh, which was a private school, uh, but one that was pretty far away from where I live. So we had you know, a long, uh, a long sort of commute, but, uh, uh, but certainly, you know, gave me lots of great cultural, educational opportunities.
1: Yeah, you know, speaking of commute, I always uh, tell people, you know, when they ask about uh, Houston and, and my growing up in that, um, you know, I lived way out um, yeah. from from the Houston um, metropolitan. It used to be even more out, but now it, it's, grown it's grown out, grown, out towards grown Sugar Land. Yes, yeah. yes. So that's where I was. Uh, where I grew up, and um, but I went to school, high school, in the, in Gosh, the city. the how long did it take you to get there? It took about an hour and a
0: half. Sitting on the freeway. Sitting on the you freeway. Know, not like in a subway, like, yes. a, you know, kind of a... <laughs> a yes. A, a like, kind of romantic commute, like in New York, you're on the train. No, you're sitting on the freeway in yes. your car, yes. bumper to bumper. Bumper to bumper. Yeah, you know, I go back to Houston and just... Just all the cars and all, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've grown very much to love the very um, uh, easy, I I guess, kind of comparatively easy lifestyle, you know, of just getting around. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, that's certainly one of the things I've grown to appreciate living in Mississippi.
1: Yes, it's definitely a difference. And I can see it when I am, um, when I go back, you know, it's just... You know, like night and day in terms of right. the traffic, and even the little traffic jams that we have here don't
0: oh, yeah. come close. Oh, sure. I mean, the stack, right? You know, <laughs> right. you know, you know, going forty-five miles an hour, you know, um, um, on the freeway constitutes traffic here. So yeah. certainly appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Welcome back to the Arts Hour. I'm Turi Fluker, Arts Industry Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission. In the studio with me today is Stuart Rockoff, and Stuart is the Executive Director of the Mississippi Humanities. Council. And um, we've just been chatting away about our childhood. Old and, home week in Houston. Yes, in Houston.
0: Not Mississippi, Houston, Texas. In Houston, we Texas. That's that. right. That's right.
1: Uh, when I first came to Mississippi, I had to make that <laughs> distinction.
0: <laughs> There's a Rothko <laughs> Chapel in Houston, Mississippi? That's amazing.
1: Yeah. yeah. The um, So, Stuart, you are a historian. I am. And um, so... I want to figure out and find out mm-hmm. uh, what led you to that um, to that path of study
0: so you know I, I've always had an interest in history, and um, uh, you know kind of a sense that understanding where we've been uh, really helps us better understand where we are today and where we might go in the future. And, you know, for me, it was also being very much drawn to the South. um, I went to college at a place called Wesleyan up in Connecticut, where I was one of the few people from South of the Mason-Dixon line. And even though one could debate whether suburban Houston cul-de-sac was the South, uh, I certainly began to identify as a Southerner in very significant ways. And um You know, uh, some of my college roommates will tell the story, and I guess I'm going to tell it now. Of junior year, um, kind of the only decoration I had on my wall of my um, of of my dorm room was the little postage stamp of William Faulkner that came out um, around that time. I think it was like a 19 cent stamp, so you can kind of age it. So, uh, so kind of you know, being kind of an expat, if you will, really strengthened my my real interest in the South, both in terms of history, in terms of its culture, um, just for fun I read tons of William Faulkner up there um, and that took a class in it and it almost killed my love of Faulkner but luckily it survived but reading it on my own again really sort of identifying with with that kind of mystery and the just the real depth of the South has always interested me and so I think that's a you know kind of a key point um kind of in my career which which led me to history and really interested me in the South
1: mm-hmm. you know I I'm am... Southern Studies graduate, and mm-hmm. um, um, and I I'll often tell people that, you know, to understand this, this country, to understand yeah. the world in many respects, one has to really understand the South.
0: You know, it's interesting. Um, so I have colleagues from all 50 states. So every state has a state um, kind of humanities council as they have an arts commission. So, you know, and I always wonder what my colleagues, and not to pick on people, but, you know, You know, Iowa, Idaho, you know, I mean, I'm sure they do very, they do very important work, but we have such a cultural richness here in the humanities that there's such a, an interest in Mississippi, um, and so uh, I think that uh, that's one of the great parts of my job is you know we get to kind of explore and help others explore the real cultural uh, richness of our state and the historical richness of our state.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting you should you mentioned that um, yesterday. You know we. Of course, are in partnership with the National Endowment for the Humanities, and yeah. and, I'm sorry, and the National Endowment for the Arts. For us, the and humanities, the Humanities, for yeah, you a twin, all, agencies. You know, twin agencies, twin agencies, burst together. That's right, nineteen sixty-five, yeah, and um, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, but the 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 conversation that I was having yesterday was that. Um, uh, we have a partnership grant with the NEA, mm-hmm. and um, and so we review. Um, we were able to to listen to our review of our partnership grant. Mm-hmm. So we were on the call. And um, and the panelists were reviewing our application. So, in reviewing the application, they talked a lot about the story mm-hmm. of the story narrative that mm-hmm. we have within that application. And and you and, and so as listening to other states, we n- no one ever said that. So, they, right. no one ever said that this this narrative, you know, was written in a way that tells a great story. So it was. It, it was Mississippi no. that brought that out, right? Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and, you know,
0: and that thing of of kind of telling our stories yeah. is something that is very key and central to what we do at the Humanities Council. And, and you know, the stories here are contested. They're conflicted. They are controversial. Um, uh, and so, you know, we have always kind of located ourselves in that area of helping to empower and enable the full diversity of our state to kind of tell their stories and to kind of account you know kind of try to come to to a greater understanding of them because those stories are not always pleasant and are not always um, you know uh, uh, something that we can be proud of, but it's something that we need to face and something we need to understand
1: absolutely so your your work as as director mm-hmm. of the Mississippi Humanities Council yeah. um tell us for those that have never heard of the council right shame on them Um, (laughs) Hey, we don't judge that's fine (laughs) you know tell us a little bit about it
0: absolutely so so um um as you mentioned before in 1965 um congress and the president created the national endowments for the arts and the humanities and in the early 1970s there was a sense that this very small amount of federal funding was not being Widely distributed enough and so the idea was to create and I think model on what happened with the arts um, Where there were arts councils created in every 50 state they created humanities councils, so we were founded in 1972 um, essentially to help distribute federal funding in the humanities into more grassroots projects across Mississippi. And so, you know, one of the differences between us and the Arts Commission is we're actually not a state organization. So we're a little bit smaller, uh, a little bit lower profile. You know, we don't get the front page of the newspaper, which sometimes is good. Um, but uh, uh, so what we but we exist to help support um, and develop public humanities programs. And one of the challenges and things that we often um, in the humanities world kind of, um, kind of complain about is if I say arts, folks know what the arts are, right? Oh yeah, the humanities, not so easy. So we spend a lot of time or we have historically trying to define what the humanities are. And the way I like to describe it in a very simple way and the way that really fits in Mississippi is that, you know, really it's, it's kind of history and culture. So we help support programs. We develop programs that explore Mississippi and America's history and culture. And, um, and so that's, you know, in a nutshell sort of what we do and who we are. You know, I try to avoid listing all, all of the academic disciplines that were in the founding legislation. So, you know, jurisprudence and philosophy and archaeology. We f- certainly do programs in all those areas. But what's most resonant in our state because of where we are really is history and culture. And so we do lots of different things, lots of different programs, grants, and council-conducted projects. But, you know, but really we want to be uh, an advocate and a catalyst for, for public humanities. So it's not just things that take place on college campuses, but the programs that reach into the community.
1: Absolutely. I think it's just fantastic work. Um you mentioned the the legislation um that was established yeah. in 1965 and in that legislation it says democracy demands wisdom and vision in our cit- in its citizens. Yes. Democracy demands wisdom and vision in its citizens. Um what do you think that 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 means? Do what do you what do you make of that of that yeah. language in that, in
0: that so,
1: legislation?
0: So I'm a historian, so I'm going to go back a little bit and put it in its context. So in 1965, we're in the midst of the Cold War, and we're in the midst of a competition with the Soviet Union and the communist world that was certainly military, it was a space race, but I think it was science, but it was also a sense of cultural, that we needed to um, help foster and strengthen um, the sort of cultural life of our country, a greater understanding and appreciation for our history. And, you know, and it's especially important in a democracy when um, government is based on an informed electorate, on someone who you know understands history and understands um, the sort of issues that face us as a country. And so as, you know, as you quoted, democracy demands wisdom. And, you know, I don't want to get off into politics and debate whether, you know, there's any problems with that um, in sort of recent years. But I do think that is an important part of the mission of all of the state councils and of neh is to foster that um and so you know and doing it in kind of creative ways so you have neh early involvement i think in the hamilton musical you know when you have kids who are singing songs about the debates of the early founders uh that's pretty cool
1: yes it is and you know one of the things about this legislation and the history of the establishment of the NEA and the NEH is something that's very um, important to me and it's very interesting to me, um, But um, we, and we can talk forever about it. Welcome back to the Arts Hour. I'm Turi Fluker, Arts Industry Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission. In the studio with me today is Stuart Rockoff. Stuart is the Executive Director of the Mississippi Humanities Council. And uh, we've been talking about the importance of the Humanities Council, the importance and of the arts. And the, yeah. arts, and the work that our, our federal partners do to, mm-hmm. to, um, to enhance our our. Work in the states, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So, as I said, you know, we could talk about, um, or at least I could talk, go on and on about the history of of this, of this is the 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 both of these endowments. Um, But I want to talk a little bit more about the NEH's impact in the state in Mississippi.
0: Sure, and you know, this is something that we. I mean, I've been in this position about four years, and you know, it was some, I know that for 20 years, we didn't really have to make the existential case of why we should exist. Um, one thing people should understand is both endowments are teeny, teeny, tiny parts of the federal budget. Each endowment gets about $150 million, which sounds like a lot of money. But in the world of the federal budget, it is literally a rounding error. I think it's about 38 one-thousandths of 1%. And so there's no way to balance the budget by cutting out the arts um, and the humanities endowments. But so, um, uh, so the point is that. Um these national federal agencies have a important impact on a place like Mississippi. I mean, we are a small, poor state. Um, you know, we don't have the, many of the large corporate funders and foundation funders that exist in other states. And so for us, you know, understanding that, you know, a little bit of this money can go kind of a long way. And, you know, one of the things that we've tried to do in the last few years is to be more... Uh, you know, to to sort of work hard at letting people know the impact of the National Endowment for the Humanities. So, for example, um, you know, an NEH grant helped to establish the Eudora Welty Museum here in Jackson. Um, an NEH grant, along with the NEA grant, helped was crucial in the development of the Blues Trail markers, which are all over the state and have had a huge impact on tourism and cultural life. Um, you know, if you've gone to the Department of Archives and History here in Jackson and pulled out an old microfilm, um, you know, old reel of microfilm of a newspaper, that was probably... Digit or turned into microfilm by a grant from the NEH. In fact, now they've gotten I think two or three grants now to, in fact, digitize a lot of those old newspapers. So even things like that. Um, After Hurricane Katrina, um, the NEA um, and the NEH gave emergency grants to museums and archives along the Gulf Coast that had suffered significant damage to help, you know, save some of those collections. And so, you know, it's. It's really had, um, for a very small amount of money, has had a very kind of visible impact and continues to do really amazing things. Uh, Last month, we had the new acting chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities, John Petey, who's from Mississippi. And I took him out to Utica, Mississippi, where uh, Heinz Community College Utica Campus got a really neat NEH grant last year to do work on Research and getting the word out about the founder of the Utica Normal Institute, a man named William Holdsclaw, who um, who actually established that that institution in the early 20th century to educate African Americans, and he was kind of a protege um, of. Um, of course, Booker T. Washington from Alabama um, um, and Tuskegee, but Holdsclaw uh, was, um, um, you know, a really important figure in Mississippi. One who's perhaps been a little bit overlooked. And we heard an amazing presentation from um, a student there, who was um, kind of middle-aged woman who had lost her job and had to go back to school to kind of get a degree. And she said that when she first came to campus, she thought it was just like a, you know, campus. But when she learned about the history of the Utica Normal Institute and how Holdsclaw built this, it it inspired her, and so in that story, we saw the impact of uh, of the humanities, of understanding the history of this institution, um, helping to inspire their students and to hopefully guide them um, 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 into a better future. So again, that was a I think a hundred thousand dollar grant, which in the vast scheme of the federal budget is teeny tiny, but one that really meant a lot to the people at Utica.
1: Absolutely, and and I was just thinking the the impact right of those mm-hmm. dollars, um, and um, and how all although very small, you know, right. but just so right. amazingly right. impactful,
0: you yeah. know, and they're all matched. I mean, certainly, sure, you know, um, um, all the grants we give have to be matched, and we measure, you know. Um, how many dollars that that investment draws? Usually, at, I think the statistic nationally is like five to one. Mm-hmm. So for every one federal dollar, additional five dollars, you know, you know, sort of come to the table. So, so again, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a smart investment, I would think. Absolutely, it is. So, you you mentioned the work of
1: the NEH, and um, and of course, you know, you all do. Your work on the local state mm-hmm. level. So, how important um, is the work? So, you all do that work. You give grants, of course, mm-hmm. but beyond grants, what 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 are some of your services? Sure.
0: So we so certainly, you know, we see ourselves really as a catalyst and a partner. You know, we're a small organization. We have five full time, one part time employee. Um, Our budget is usually less than a million dollars a year, Uh, but we exist to help organizations do what they want to do. So, you know, for example, just recently we um, sort of gave a grant to a group up in Greenville, Mississippi, that wanted to create a literary festival. And, you know, and I can say that that's, you know, we were invented to help folks like that. Right. And so we were very excited to give them our largest grant, um, which is not huge, but, you know, it's seventy five hundred dollars is the maximum what we give to help, you know, be a catalyst to help further those sorts of cultural programs. But beyond grants, you know, we do a lot of work, of what we call council conducted programs. And, you know, earlier we're talking about kind of democracy demanding wisdom. One of the areas that we've been really interested in is promoting greater dialogue. And, you know, one of the. key aspects of the humanities, you know, is civil discourse, is being able to discuss difficult issues. And so last year, we launched a program called Ideas on Tap that was designed to model a civil discourse about issues that can be often quite combative. So we have tackled our state flag. We've tackled monuments. We have tackled education and healthcare, um, and you know what we're trying to do is that you know we don't. We are nonpartisan. We are nonpolitical. We have relations um, and kind of connections to people on a wide array. You know. Um, 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 of the political spectrum, we can be the convener. And we can model that we can have these discussions in a civil way. And I think that is, especially in this day and age, if I can editorialize, is very important for the health of our democracy. And so that's one that we, have you know, sort of quite proud of. And you know, we do lots of different things. Um, we are getting ready, um, hopefully by the time this airs, maybe around that time, but we are going to help launch the Online Encyclopedia of Mississippi History and Culture. Um, this this gigantic book was published last year by our friends at University Press, working with the Center for the Study of Southern Culture. Uh, we have been quietly, secretly building the website, and we're going to unveil it later this year so that um, people all around the state, all around the country, all around the world will have access to um, the history um, of our state um, um, and uh, all of its great writers. And so we're very excited about that. and. Uh, That's just a few of the sort of things that we, uh, you know, have been working on.
1: Some amazing projects. uh, Yeah, no, I'm very,
0: very excited about them. Absolutely.
1: Yes, um, and I'm, I'm really, really thrilled about uh, the online version of the encyclopedia. You know, uh,
0: when I uh, got the job, I heard about the big book, and listen, I have a copy. I love that big book. Um, But we also know uh, that, you know. In order to really have an you know a large impact and reach people beyond the state and reach into every school in Mississippi, that an online version was you know was important. So very excited to work with folks at University Press, folks at the Center up at Ole Miss, and uh, we are going to be unveiling that later this year.
1: I'm I'm thrilled to hear that. Yeah. I mean you know and that it really is the core of our work. is accessibility. It's Absolutely, about the fact that. We're making the humanities and the arts accessible to the public. Right.
0: Our tagline is the humanities are for everyone, and we do a lot of sponsorships here on MPB, so people who have probably heard that phrase before. And it's one that we take very seriously. And I'm very mindful that we are the Mississippi Humanities Council and that we need to serve our state. And so we are always thinking about how we can better reach folks that we have not been reaching. That's in terms of economics, that's in terms of geography, that's in terms of race, you know, age. And, you know, one of the programs that I've been quite proud of that we've supported over the last few years is we have been funding um, kind of humanities educational programs within prisons. So we've been funding programs at parchment I've been to Parchman um, um, for the graduation ceremonies. We've been funding programs at the Central Mississippi Correctional Facility. Um, an amazing group of professors from from Ole Miss, from Millsaps, Mississippi College, Jackson State have been involved in teaching um, um, this the inmates at these um, sort of institutions history, creative writing, and uh, to me, to us, you know, that's a program that sort of reflects the fact that we are, you know, we're for everyone.
1: Absolutely, you know, it's um, it's a it's a, a another wonderful if you're. Um... A kind of a geek like me that's read this um this this legislation that the um the Arts and Humanities yeah. Act. Um, I think it's another really, and I'm misquoting it, I think, but essentially it's saying that the you know the arts and humanities belong to the people after all, is the people that create them.
0: Right, and that's something that we fight against is this perception that we are elitist. Right, and uh, while certainly we fund some things that you know can be pretty academic, uh, and, you know, not so broadly, um, you know, kind of appealing. But, you know, we do require that all of the things we fund have a public face. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't want to fund things of scholars talking to scholars. We want to fund scholars talking to the general public. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we are often working with universities, giving them ideas on, well, you know, well, maybe you don't have that program on campus where if you don't know that campus, you don't know where to go, where do you park. It can be kind of intimidating. Do it, you know, instead at the public library. Or, you know, there's one great example I remember from a few years ago. We funded an oral history project up in Starkville about the kind of civil rights movement in Starkville. And instead of doing it on the campus, which I love Mississippi State, but it can be a difficult campus to figure out where you're going if you're not familiar with it, they had the program um, at a local hotel, you know, you know, in kind of a kind of a ballroom, and they drew a huge crowd of people from the community, and so to me it was a wonderful example that you know that there is tremendous interest in these sort of programs, and if we can make them accessible, you know, if they're free and open to the public, you know, if they're in a place where folks know where to get there, um, then then you can uh, have that kind of impact.
1: Absolutely, I think that that's. That's that's key, you know, is to making sure that um, what what we're offering um, at the Arts Commission and, and what you're offering at the Humanities Council, right. you know, is accessible to people that right. um, would want to be able to see them. So we can't make it difficult.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting, you know, one debate we have within the humanities world, you know, our rules are if we fund your program, it needs to be free. And other councils have kind of moved away from that. And there's some arguments to be made that, you know, if people have to buy a ticket, they're more invested, you know, you know, they're sort of more likely to come. But, you know, we have stuck to that because, again, we don't want, you know, um, kind of economics to be a barrier for anybody. And our sense is that their federal tax dollars have paid for this, so therefore they shouldn't be charged again. Um, Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Stuart, how can we go about nurturing a state of
0: art and humanities lovers? Uh, well, I see we're getting the, uh, the uh, short thing. I'm, well, I mean, I would say that I think that there... It's not that hard. There is tremendous interest in this state in our arts and our culture and our history. Um kind of look at those two new museums that they've built here in Jackson and the and the thousands of people who've gone through there. So I think it's just kind of making um you know giving those making those opportunities available to kind of communities across the state. I think the interest is there and I just think that we need to help nurture it.
1: Thank you so much.